Welcome to Peace of Mind, a podcast looking at mental health and psychiatric conditions and the science behind them. My name is Borja Olgania. I'm the research coordinator for the National Centre for Mental Health here at Cardiff University in the Hayden Ellis Building. And we're bringing you conversations from patients affected by these conditions alongside researchers working at furthering the understanding of an incredibly complex area of psychology, psychiatry and biology. This episode, we're talking about ADHD. And I'd like to welcome our guest for this episode, Professor Anita Thaper, who's Professor of Psychological Medicine and Clinical Neurosciences, and Zoe Piper, who will speak to us about her experience with ADHD. So thank you very much, both of you, for agreeing to take part in this and speaking to each other and speaking to us about what ADHD is. I think it's probably best to start off with some like introductions, basically, as, as to what your experiences are and how you got involved with ADHD. So Anita, um, how did you get involved in ADHD research and... Could you tell us a little bit more about what is ADHD, the causes and symptoms and prevalence and that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, I really got interested in ADHD coming from two angles because I'm a researcher and a clinician. And I was doing research on the different causes of child mental health problems and child difficulties. This is back in the early 1990s. And... At that time, we didn't know much about genetics and genetic contributions to these sort of children's difficulties. And I remember being really struck because I had a, a clinic where I had a family with around five or six children, all of whom had ADHD. And that's really stuck in my memory. And I got really interested then as to what was the genetic contribution and I mean, actually, this this was at a time when I'd just started research because yeah. I'd really started mainly as a clinician. And we and other groups have found, then found around that time, ADHD was highly heritable. There was a strong genetic contribution. Um, what I mean by that is that most medical conditions, ADHD included, aren't entirely explained by genes. They're multifactorial. They're multiple genes and environmental risk factors isn't a single gene but nevertheless ADHD like autism came out as very highly heritable so that's really what got me interested then in in pursuing um, more about the genetics. In terms of what ADHD is it's a brain disorder that starts in typically in early child you know from early childhood although it might not present in that age group necessarily um the core symptoms are marked severe overactivity when you know children are young this could be they don't aren't able to sit still fidget a lot when people get older that's more a feeling of inner restlessness the the physical overactivity isn't as marked they also there's also severe concentration problems and also impulsiveness acting before thinking not being able to wait your turn most people recognize these symptoms are um they're not sort of problems that we don't understand and so sometimes that can result in misunderstanding but that you know there's lots of um 
issues in medicine like that. When we talk about a diagnosis of ADHD, we're talking about this constellation, this cluster of symptoms that are really severe at the severe end, and they've got to be interfering with someone's function. So, you know, they're, they're failing academically or in work. You know, they're not being able to, you know, manage relationships. Um, it, it, it's got to be interfering. And also another criteria is that you can't have these symptoms just in one setting. It's got to be, you know, it's not just, say, for example, the child that just is reported just at home. It's got to be present in other situations for adults. It's a problem in work. So we're talking about a severe pro- set of problems. Yeah. So Zoe, uh, what's your experience with ADHD and uh, could you just introduce yourself and some of the work you do? Yeah, um, my name is Zoe Piper, as you've already said, um, and I started a charity, ADHD Connections, around four years ago. Um, That was started purely through need of desperation, um, of needing to find other people experiencing what I was. Um, I've got a son who's now 14. He was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of six. And even before that, 18 months, two years, our problems began. Um, And I felt alone, desperate, isolated, and just needed to find other families really who... I needed support from them and they need support from me. And, you know, I've got a great network now of families that we help support each other. Um, And I've learned so much from the families and I get a lot of help and support in terms of behaviour management, being able to ask questions and get advice um, and things like that. And that has been, you know, my strength through my journey so far. So I'm oh, sorry to interrupt you, but some of the symptoms that uh, Anita says, does that, does that relate to your son? Is that the kind of thing that you were noticing in him from the early age? Yeah, definitely. Um, around the age of 18 months, there was things that I recognised in him. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I struggled to manage his behaviour. He was like a bottle of pop. He was just on the go constantly. Um, He'd be quite relaxed and all of a sudden he would just explode into this Tasmanian devil. He'd be just going from this to that. Um, I used to find behaviours such as repetitive things that he used to do and like to watch like certain films all the time um, that he had really, really struggled in school. I mean, he was three years old and expelled from his first school. He didn't see consequences in his actions. I picked him up one day and he'd painted himself green. He ran out of school. Oh, mum, I'm the Hulk. He was so proud of himself. However, it didn't go down too well um, with the school. Um, He then, obviously, the older he got... In a school environment, he was expect more was expected from yeah. him, and I noticed then really that the concentration side of it was really really having an impact on his education, um, and I honestly believe that um, his education didn't start until he was able to manage his symptoms, and that then was through medication, and that then allowed him the ability to concentrate for long enough to kind of you could get some work in there sure so one of the things we try and do with this podcast is kind of like get rid of any misconceptions myths or stigmas and it's really interesting that you both uh, talk about how young an age that adhd can be uh, essentially diagnosed and a lot of people would say well if a child's about 18 months or two years old or three are they not just misbehaving are they not just being you know 
kids or toddlers? I think that's why they leave kind of um, diagnosing until six, seven, eight, you know, and from then onwards, I think up until then, they expect the maturity of the child to kind of grow Mm. out of certain behaviours. But unfortunately, if you've got a child with ADHD, those behaviours, they won't grow out of them, you know, on their own. They might be able to... um, they might be able to control a little bit more, but unfortunately those behaviours that you're seeing at two, three still carry on and that's where it impacts then in school and things like that. Mm. So we've talked about it being primarily a childhood disease, but it can be diagnosed in adults as well. Is it being more readily diagnosed in adults? Is it are adults more aware that perhaps they're, they might have ADHD, but they've never been diagnosed. Is that something you've both come across or found? Um, for me personally, I was diagnosed with ADHD right, three okay. years ago. Wow, um, okay. Off the back of my child um, having ADHD. And as soon as my son's consultant said to me, I think you need to go and be seen. Um, I think you have ADHD. And that's where, you know, Dylan's got it from. It was just like a light bulb had just gone off and... For the first time in my life, I understood myself. I understood why I behave in a certain way, why I struggled so much growing up with friendships and things like that. And it helped me tremendously to, to get that clarification of actually this is why. So that so a diagnosis helped you so understand? Yeah, I mean, some people think, what's the point in having a diagnosis? You know, you're, you're an adult now, what's yeah. the point? For me, it was being able to understand myself yeah, and absolutely. why... I, I am a certain way. Um, so, yeah, it would most definitely help me tremendously. Do you find that often, Anita? Is, it, is that a rare occurrence that people in would be diagnosed in adulthood or is it more common now? It's interesting. Um, ADHD and another child neurodevelopmental disorder, autism, that begin, these are just brain disorders that start very early. People used to think children grew out of it. Um, And it's interesting because it relates to a point that Zoe was making earlier that actually children change over time, as do teenagers. So generally, we become less active with age. Um, Our constant, you know, people's concentration improves from the age of, you know, two till 18. So there's a general population improvement. And of course, people with ADHD, there is change However, they don't catch up with people in the general population. There is still, lots of studies have shown there is still a lag. And actually, follow-up studies that have followed up people with ADHD until they're adult, while some do improve, um, a substantial proportion remain with just a full-blown diagnosis or are impaired by what's called residual symptoms. So yes, I think there is a recognition now that actually this isn't just something that people grow out of. And as a result that, you know, people, there's two ways that this has become an issue for adult services. One is that children come out at the end to the end of children's services. And then there's an issue of where do they go next? And that transition, a lot of people fall through the gap. And that's actually a really important issue at the moment. Um, services are beginning to pick up on adults, but but it varies across the country. The second way is people who have perhaps had problems through childhood, but they've never been picked up, Um, particularly females, because, you know, with the... 
female ADHD and autism, there are certain types of characteristics, perhaps less behavior disturbance that they might not get picked up. And so, you know, the, the, the proportion of females picked up later, it, it tends to then be higher. So are more females being picked up uh, later on and yeah. more males at a younger age? So this is that feed into the misconception that it's largely a male disorder at a younger age? Basically, the studies that have been done, not of clinic populations, show there is a male excess yeah. and for neurodevelopmental disorders, ADHD, autism, epilepsy, there tends to be a male excess. So it's about three to four boys for every girl if you just look in the population. However, when you get to clinic, that rate then goes up to about seven to eight boys to every girl, which means the girls aren't being picked up. Right. And however, that gap between boy and girl tends to be less in adult in surveys of adult clinics and there's two reasons one is girls could get picked up the second unfortunate is that boys who've started off with very early severe problems could end up in services other than health services and there's a lot of research on that sadly they end up um going not not everyone of course yeah. but some will end up in you know in prison services or in other sorts of, you know, they fall out of health services because obviously you need quite a lot of organisational skills to access health. And, that, that you know, once you're out of the educational system, then that can be difficult for pe some people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point uh, when you think about the societal pressures and whether by performing more research, understanding childhood developmental disorders, we might be able to pick up on people who would, like I said, say, like slip through the cracks or something like that, to be able to help them at an early age to get them into the services they need for them to be able to ultimately fulfil their potential. Um, so, Zoe, does that, with your experience of ADHD, is that brought you? Does that help you understand your son a little bit better? Does it? Does it do you feel like it's something that you share with him or? It's definitely, we've got a bond um, like I haven't got with my other children. We kind of just get each other. We kind of just look at each other and we know and he's got like this little wickedness about him. But it is um, really, really a positive one. Um, I think for me, the, one of the biggest areas now that are letting him down is the education system. Right, okay. Um, I feel that, you know, within the we've got a fantastic CAMS support um, and it doesn't matter what, you know, we seem to do with his medication and, um, you know, help at home and things like that. When he goes into a, the education system, that is where the biggest failing for me is um, because it's not understood. And I think that's one of the biggest areas that need looking at, really. For anyone who doesn't know, could you say what comes is? Oh, sorry. It's the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. Excellent. <laughs> that's <laughs> I <to> think that. <laughs> so, yeah, so for me, you know, um, that's where his struggle is. And Anita said earlier about children falling through the gaps, you know, I know he'd be lucky to come out of school with any GCSEs. I'd be very, very surprised if he did. Um, so where does he go at 16? Even if he doesn't carry on with an education, um, what does he do? And that's where I'm really worried about him kind of getting into trouble. Kind of, and then it, he's more of a, a, you know, a young adult then, and it's yeah. his decision to take the medication and things like that. So that is going to be a massive test of time. And, you know, I think a lot of patience and understanding is going to be needed at that time. How does how does the adult services compare to the child services? Um, I mean, I was seen last in clinic around two years ago. 
Um, I mean, you're meant to be seen, I think, what, every six months. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to a consultation with another adult who has AD, who has now been diagnosed with ADHD. And I was told that he doesn't have ADHD because adults don't get it. So I think services for adults are miles behind all the, you know, for that are for children. And I think all the all that the services are trying to do when you're a child, as you get an, get to be an adult, that is where there's a massive problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, they need it more then. They need a lot more guidance and a lot more reassurance to, you know, to keep, well, to be just aware of, you know, their own condition sure, and yeah. how to manage it, not just through medication, but, you know, through recognising their own behaviour. I mean, I don't take medication um very often I only take it when I know I've got to think before I speak and maybe today should have been a good day to actually take it um but you know I choose just to recognize it myself when you know soon to act appropriately and things like that so do you think that it is um a case of stigma still affecting ADHD (laughs) or um I mean has the perception changed has it got better has it got worse or are we still in a place now where there is still a lot of stigma attached to it like there would have been with other conditions many a long time ago um what what do you both think is that Um, massively yeah still got a massive stigma over it um I don't know why, because I mean, more and more research is coming out that's showing it is a real condition. It's something that can't be helped, you know. Um, that's an interesting one, because that's one of the things I came across when I was reading about ADHD before I started, is the quote unquote, ADHD isn't real. It's, it's just misbehavior yeah. or something like I that. I wish it was, yeah. because you can, you know, you can help with behavior. You know, you can go to parenting classes. You can, you know, try and help your child in that way. But with ADHD, you can try and try and try as much as you want. It's not going to change that behaviour yeah. the same. It just takes a lot, lot longer. What do you think, Anita? Is it, is it frustrating for you as a researcher when you're working in a field where people are saying, actually, the condition you're working on isn't a real thing? It's interesting because people do say that. Mm. Um, however, I would say that was one of the reasons why I decided I would focus on ADHD research when I went into psychiatry, because I was thinking, should I do psychiatry or pediatrics um, as a medical student, after a medical student, because I thought, oh, you can really make a difference here because there's so much stigma. And obviously, you you know, people go into medicine to help people. I thought this is something. And then I could see with ADHD, there's so much misunderstanding and stigma. Mm. And I'm really driven to do the research because there isn't any point arguing about things and having a you know sort of arguing in terms of opinions you actually have to generate scientific findings and you know medicine's full of if you look at the history of medicine there's loads of examples of misunderstandings and you know faulty understandings of things and all sorts of um odd understanding about different conditions so but the only way you're going to tackle this is through science and research and taking a dispassionate view as to what are the causes how does it happen what's going to help it and so I and I do think that the stigma is still there I mean it does make me think gosh what must it be like for the people I've seen in clinic and their families and people do say we don't want to tell people 
Um, it's quite interesting because sometimes I see people even from the medical profession, they don't want to sort of tell people because I think it'll be really helpful for people to know that you come from all strata. Yeah. And people don't want to discuss it. And, you know, there is a lot of, I think, stigma about doing the research. It isn't, a, you know, a cool disorder. I mean, even amongst the mental health disorders, um, you know, I think, you know, sometimes my colleagues say, why don't you work on autism? So much more funding there. It's cool. You know, you're a nice person. You don't get emails telling you, oh, why are you doing this? But it makes me want to do it even more because I think, well, what about the people who've got this? Absolutely. I mean, it's a really good like way of looking at it. The way I've looked at a lot of these conditions since working in mental health is when you go back 30, 40 years and look at things like cancer, you look at things like AIDS, where there was these huge stigmas and misconceptions and misunderstandings. And now because they're mainstream and they're funded very, very well, people are quite happy to come out and say, you know, if they've had the condition and it's only by knowing people with a, a you know, condition, A, B, C, whatever, that you have that human element and the understanding that actually can affect anyone. It is, you know, very widespread and a lot of these conditions are, especially mental health conditions. Um, when the, one of the things that we do with NCMH is that we always encourage people to get involved with the research. And one of the ways you can do that is by getting involved with going on to ncmh.info and becoming a, a participant or getting involved with our engagement. Anita, have you, uh, and, and Zoe, actually, you've, you've both obviously both been uh, involved in research. Um, how did you guys meet initially? You've known each other for a while beforehand. This isn't the first time you've met, is it? No. <laughs> oh. um, I met Anita. I went to a seminar that Anita held in Cardiff University. And that from then, I've got my strength from the research that Anita's done. Uh, and it's given me that fight to say, no, it's real. And this is why um, if it wasn't for the work that Anita and her team had done, you know, we would still it would, we'd be even further behind. At least now we've got some something concrete there to kind of, you know, to show. And I'm so grateful um, from the first time that we met and we've actually carried on then um, and had many conversations really about ADHD and yeah. So it, obviously it, it must help having people like Zoe get involved who actually who are if you have the experience of ADHD in the research and be able to kind of like explain to people how to get involved in research. Do you think there's an issue with people getting involved, not just in ADHD research, but mental health research in general? Yeah, I think it's really an important issue. I mean, you highlight really well about cancer. I mean, I remember when I was a medical student, we did not say the word cancer. We said neoplastic growth. We used all sorts of abbreviations to avoid saying the word because there was so much stigma about it. Now, one in six people with cancer participate in research. We know much more about how it, you know, and what causes it. We have new treatments. HIV is another example where there was a lot of stigma, masses of research, this is what needs to happen in mental health. And I think one of the hardest thing about mental health, I mean, ADHD is a good example, is these are really, you know, stressful, chronic conditions where actually there isn't much support. If you had a chronic disease like diabetes, there would be constant monitoring, management, lifestyle. Um, we haven't got parity yet for mental health with physical health. And I honestly believe that, you know, 
one of the ways that we've got to tackle this is through the science and the research. It's not the only way. I think what people like Zoe, who are out on the ground, are really important, not just for, you know, for us to know about, you know, getting what it's like to have the experience of ADHD, but also to provide support when there aren't enough services at the moment. But I think if we're thinking about the future and maybe the next generation, we do need the research. And we want figures like one in six for ADHD and mental health. It's, It's vastly lower, the figures for participation. And of course, it's difficult because these are stressful conditions. But until we have the most impaired or unwell people participating, we're not going to know very much about these conditions and then services aren't going to follow. I think ADHD is something that growing up, I didn't know much about. Is a lot more, I think, in terms of autism and Asperger's that I kind of, I did, you know, understand, to be honest. There was, I had there were people in my class or in school who had these um, diagnoses. So you'd understand it. You'd have a friend who may have it. But then ADHD was always something that no one really spoke about, understood. So I think it's really important, especially with the work that you, you do, Zoe, to be able to make it into the, like, into the mainstream, into the media. Is there any positive or negative uh, media depictions of ADHD that you've seen that you think you can give an example of that's good or bad? Or how can we improve it? How can we improve the image of basically someone saying, actually, I've got ADHD, or let's do ADHD research, let's talk about the condition. For me, I always um, encourage, you know, especially my son to be proud that he's got it. I always tell him that it's nothing to be ashamed of and that it it makes him unique because he will achieve things um, in a completely different way to somebody without the condition. I just try to keep um, reassuring him, basically, that it, you know, it's good to have it. It's, yeah, it's good to have ADHD in a way. I mean, I wouldn't have got to where I, I am now, I don't think, without without it. It gives me drive, a lot of drive um, to do what I do. Um, I think the media, it's always quite a negative um, reflection. I think the negative, the media give quite negative. Um, I mean, the ADHD Foundation have just brought out a paper now and they've found some really staggering information um, regarding ADHD and how it affects families. And I think a lot more work needs to be done on the ground to actually get across to um, government, schools, health boards, actually is how it's affecting and what we need to actually improve because there's so much more that can be done to actually turn it around. So that paper you mentioned there, we can actually put that up on our website and our podcast page. So if anyone who's listening is interested in reading more about that paper from the ADHD Foundation, do go on ncmh.info forward slash podcasts. All our podcasts are there and all the links to the things we talk about, opportunities to get involved in research, links to things like ADHD connections that Zoe's involved with. It's all going to be on there. We're trying to use this as a resource. And if anyone thinks of anything that we can add, feel free to email us or tweet us or get in touch with us directly and we can change and add things. Um, Going back to some of the research involved, you've spoken, Anita, about genetics, about social research. Where where do you see research going in terms of ADHD in the next few years and what are the highest, what are the best achievements so far that you, you would say? There are so many. (laughs) You'll have me for over an hour. Um, I think one of the interest, well, there's been a lot of changes even in the time. So why don't I just focus on what's changed in terms of our knowledge in in the last sort of 
20, 30 years. Um, one of the things, and I think it's interesting you raise the issue about autism, because actually autism, people do understand more about it. But when I first trained people, it was still the term refrigerator parents causing autism was not very far away. So I think it's a lesson as to how science coupled with real, you know, policy and drive can, can change What do you mean things. by refrigerator parents? I've never heard that before. Okay. People people used to think that autism was caused by parents being cold and right, okay. towards their children. So and schizophrenia, there was schizophrenogenic mothers. This was all in my this was in my early training. I do yeah. remember it being around. So you know things things have changed. So in terms of the research, what what do we know now? Um, well, one of the things is that we now conceptualize ADHD as one of a, of a spectrum of neurodevelopmental disorders. So um, previously people said, well, if you've got ADHD, you can't have autism and vice versa. We now realize that um, these are quite closely associated conditions. People could have both and people might have features of one or the other if they've got one of these diagnoses. So that that's one issue, um, that kind of realization that ADHD is part of a spectrum of these of these disorders. So that's that's changed. People used to think ADHD can't occur if you've got an intellectual disability. That has also now changed, recognising that actually it, it can occur across all the cognitive ability spectrum. There's been quite a lot of research showing longer term outcomes. Um, whilst you know, some people do well. The figures are still sobering, highlighting that this is an important condition. Um, big uh, studies from Scandinavia have shown, you know, that ADHD is associated with premature mortality. Um, also, it, ADHD can lead to substance misuse, but that substance misuse seems to be less if when there's treatment given. So this sort of 16 to 25 is quite an important age group. The recognition that ADHD can persist into adult life. Um, also the genetic contribution to ADHD, that's, that's changed in the last 30 years. I mean, you know, just in the last few months, you know, international efforts of which we're part of in Wales have discovered particular areas of, you know, the genome genes that are involved. This does not mean that we will be testing for people um, with specific genes because it isn't just one gene that ever accounts yeah. for these disorders. We also recognise there's a small group of people who might carry sort of rare um, genetic what's mutations, which, you know, Again, that could have implications for the future, not for everyone, but for some, you know, small group, maybe who've got ADHD and something else, perhaps they've got an, a learning problem or they've got a heart defect or something. I think it's really important to like re reiterate the work that we do with NCMH and here in Cardiff and the MRC Centre and with genetics and genomics, that only really happens when you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people giving samples and getting involved. You can't get these results without with you know 10 or 20 people or the no. old school n equals three kind of thing no. it, it has to be tens of thousands ideally 
And when you say there is no one gene, there is no ADHD gene, there is no gene specifically for many diseases. So yeah. it's, it's going to be a group of genes and also environmental factors that may implicate someone in having the, a higher risk. But again, you might have these genes, but you might not end up developing this condition. So yeah, and that would be true for diabetes yeah. or hypertension. You could have a relative with these conditions. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it. So it's a lot more complex, but genetics is allowing us to kind of understand a lot more about the groups of people that might be yeah. more prone to. I think it's really important that for anything involving the brain, genetics is really key because if you've got met um, an illness or a disorder which is involving, I don't know, say the liver, you can actually get bits of liver. You can access liver tissue. We cannot access brain tissue. So the genetics is like giving us a window into the brain because you can do that by just getting someone spit. Yeah. Um, so that can give us insights into potential new treatments. It can tell us a bit about the nature of ADHD. As I've said, like the genetics is quite important in recognizing that ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder because the, the, there's a we've shown that there's a big genetic overlap with conditions such as autism. Um, the other interesting finding that's come out in the last few years is that People, I mean, anyone who, who knows people with ADHD or who does a clinic will say, well, I see a lot of social stress and social adversity and I see relationships disrupted. That's what's causing the ADHD. And, but what's really interesting is people who've done careful research have actually shown this seems to be a consequence of the right, ADHD. Okay. So different people have used different designs because in, in science, you've always got to be skeptical, you know, until you see the same pattern of findings coming using different sort of experimental designs, you don't believe it. So this finding has come out really using different designs. Actually having ADHD and ADHD genetic liability can create risks. So for example, um, sort of having you know, a sort of disruptive, hostile relationship with, um, you know, say between a son and a mother, people say, oh, that's what's caused ADHD, but it actually looks like it's a consequence. Treatment studies show that when you treat them, this relationship improves. That's really um, interesting. That's, so that's really, yeah. quite important because then people can see, you know, like you can take a superficial glance and say, oh, well, no wonder they've got it. But actually, if you look at the careful science, you've got to be really careful about cause and consequence. That's, that, that is really interesting. I mean, when we look at uh, getting involved in research, uh, Zoe, does getting, you said that getting, uh, your work with an ETS helped you and given you support. Does getting, taking part in research help you understand your own condition better? And does it, do you feel like you've got some kind of sense of ownership in um, of the condition? Massively. Yeah. I mean, it's down to us now. I mean, we've got the scientists there. We, they've got the means but we've got to be able to make ourselves available. You know, it's a little um, bit of blood, but like I need to said spit, and that is it. It literally takes 45 minutes of your time um, to actually help them and not just help them, but it helps us. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why, I mean, my son was, I think he was eight or nine when he did it and he was so proud of himself yeah. because he actually gave blood and um, yeah, he was proud and it's important for children as well. I think with ADHD to, for them to realize that there is something they can do, they can make change and it's only by us all standing together and by doing this research that we're able to, to get the results and to get that recognition out there 
that it is real, you know. Yeah, absolutely. This is what we live with and we need help with a lot more understanding um, in order to help us more in the future. So one of the things we do with NCMH is that we've got um, a large tissue collection. So we've got blood and saliva that we just mentioned and we have people taking part in it. We've got about 10,000 people who have taken part in the study. Majority of those people don't have ADHD. It's actually a very, very, very small minority. So we are looking actively for people who have ADHD or uh, families of people with ADHD who want to get involved who might not have a mental health condition or a psychiatric condition, but those controls actually help us as well. So if you're interested, please do get in touch with us on ncmh.info. This is an interview and you might give us a live sample or a blood sample, depending on what you want to do. And the field team that we work with are incredible. And I'm personally responsible for the sample. So I can, <laughs> I can be honest and say that we do a really good job with them. Um, is there any kind of anything else that you would say in terms of research that we could do better, Anita? I think we probably, as scientists, we have to highlight why research is important. I think sometimes um, it can be a bit scary to know what, what what's it going to be used for. And I guess perhaps in it's interesting when I talk to my Scandinavian colleagues, they suspect that in some countries people are a bit suspicious about authority, which well they tell it they tell me that they don't they don't have quite the same issues. But I just kind of think that the most important thing is if we actually want to change things, you've got to find out about it. And sometimes you don't know along the line how it's going to exactly help. I mean, cancer, HIV, nobody knew exactly how it was going to help, but we have to do research. And, and, you know, the easiest thing is to do research on people who are quite well, not on people who've got ADHD. So it it is really important to do the research, but I think we also have to be important. It's important for scientists and, and for clinicians to to really explain why we're doing it and why it's important. And I suppose um, bringing together the genetic and scientific research and the social research together to get a real for... uh, Yes, it's not one or the other. I mean, social factors are important for all of us, yeah? If we're poor, if we're hungry, if, you know... Bad things are happening to us. It doesn't matter what if you've got diabetes, if you haven't got anything, it's going to make a difference. We're not saying by looking at genetics, we don't count any of the other things. Yeah. But, you know, as I said, it gives a bit of insight into the brain and the genetics is also can sometimes help in working out the environment as yeah. well. For example, we've been using some of the genetic findings to look at some of the very early factors that a baby experiences in the womb. So you know, ADHD, because it's early, um, we, we tend to look at factors that, ha- you know, yeah. that happen very early. Absolutely. So what, what do you think? Is that- I, I just think anyone who sat here or there listening, you know, to this and you are affected by ADHD in any way, you know, just go and sign up for the research um, tell people about it because this is the future. This is the only way to get the services and to get... Like I said before, recognition about this condition um, and it impacts massively on a family. Um, Having a child with ADHD causes family breakups. You know, it's it's not a nice condition to live with at all. You never know what you're going to get from one hour to the other. And we need to give a lot more support. And the only way to do that, again, is by, you know, 
getting involved with the work that you're doing here at the NCMH. And I've been a part of it now for a couple of years. Yeah. And you're treated amazingly. You can have a look at the research and you can be proud then yeah. that you've contributed to these findings. Well, other thing that we do really is down to our participants. I mean, if we didn't have any participants, we wouldn't have any samples, we wouldn't have any research projects. And it's we have to say thank thank you to you and people like you who get involved for 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 whatever reason. Um, because this entire building would, would, wouldn't really stand if we didn't have people taking part in our research and getting involved and actually making a difference to people. Um, we'd spoken really, like, we kind of like touched on the fact that there's been a bit of a spur in the recent, like, last few months that everyone's been involved with the ADHD and international collaborations. What's brought that spur on? What's an ignited and a fresh interest? The main reason why we've suddenly had a breakthrough in the genetics globally is because of our Danish colleagues. They had 16,000 people with ADHD to contribute. It's uh, quite a big cohort. For, yeah. yeah. Um, they did this through a national initiative. So basically that's what's So it literally is a case of happened. people have got involved and we've got that data there because yeah. you have that cohort there. Again, this paper, this Danish paper, we will put it up on our website yeah. so people can look at it. It's a joint paper. I just want to say we've got some Welsh samples <laughs> in there. But um, there's, you know, samples from elsewhere in Europe. There's a few from America as well. Um, so it's international. But as I said, the real boost, you know, really came from the Danes. But Wales made a, you know, a, a contribution, yeah, yeah, yeah. not yeah. of that order of magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> a few hundred. No, that's fantastic. I mean, could... with brand new technologies, like things like DNA sequencing and genotyping, we are, we, we're able to understand a, a lot more. Um, do you think that we're wholly going to be reliant upon genetics and then genomics in the future? Or how do you see those technologies evolving to help us understand? For, you know, for any condition, you need a mixture of research approaches. That's what we do particularly well here. But as I said, the genes can also be used to look at environments. It can also give clues about potential treatments. For example, treatments already there may be used for another condition that you could then yeah. then use. So so that's one issue. What's what's going to happen? We, we've only just started on the the gene discovery pathway for ADHD for the reasons that you said you need really large large samples. Um, the the gene findings I've talked about uh, these are what are called common variants. There's one things that we carry. All of us carry. They're quite they're quite common, but just a cluster of them could result in in basically an increased risk for ADHD. The other type of gene um, variations that also associated with increasing your risk for ADHD are, are more rare. You've got like, you can, like, for example, we found some years back that chunks of DNA missing or extra in your chromosome were that, that, that type of um, observation was more common in people with ADHD. And people are now trying to find more rare mutations, what we call rare mutations in neurodevelopmental disorders. That's worked really well for autism. We're lagging behind so far yeah. for ADHD, but that's that's another type of research. Why, again, it gives us a bit of clue about brain, what's going on in the brain, a bit about the biology. Also the potential, I mean, as I keep saying, none of this genetic finding are we going to have a gene testing. Yeah. But there will be a small group of people with ADHD that in in the future that you may want to do testing for. Perhaps they, you know, they've got 
a more complicated picture. I mean, we've seen this for intellectual disability. When I was training, um, and even, you know, not very long ago, we used to say that mild intellectual disability was due to social factors. Um, and now we do genome testing on all of them. Of course, people with intellectual disability are, you know, can be more socially disadvantaged, but now genome testing is basically part of the NHS for everyone because you will pick up a group with subtle, rare mutations. And it's not inconceivable in the next 20 years that this will happen Excellent. for disorders like ADHD. So I think it'd be good to, um, if we kind of brought things to a close, to go back to Zoe's charity with ADHD Connections. So how can people get involved with your charity and how can uh, how can people contact you? Yeah, I mean, we've got a website for um, the charity. Uh, there's also, we've got a Facebook page, which is just ADHD Connections. We've also got a closed support group there, which, you know, people are able to talk and discuss um, issues and things like that. So yeah, just find us on on Facebook, Facebook. or on on the website really, which is just adhdconnections.org. Excellent. Is there any other things that you guys would like to highlight to anyone who's listening? Educate educators <laughs> a bit more for me is, um, you know, that's one of the massive, massive things that I'm trying to drive at the moment is to make training for teachers or anyone dealing with children, you know, social services, um, any third sector organisations, you know, they need help to understand um, a child with ADHD because at the moment there's, they're getting penalised for having ADHD um, and I just think a lot more needs to be done about that really. How about yourself, Anita? I think schools are really important. I would agree. Um, so, you know, for, for conditions like ADHD, Autism, although I think it is changing for autism in a way that hasn't changed yet for ADHD. Um, school is a really important environment. It's where you start, and I would agree with that. I think there needs to be education, but I also think um, as well as that, we need we also need research and more research and more research on ADHD and we, you know, to change things. But as well, from, you know, a parent perspective, you know, you told your child had a, has ADHD and that's it. You know, I think that a lot more needs to be done in offering the parent more support in learning about ADHD, giving us more strategies and ways to deal with our child. And I honestly believe that, you know, working with strategies and working more closely um, with the health board and with education we can manage the condition better and we haven't just got to rely on having medication. I mean, that's our only thing that we're offered. Yeah. You know, NICE guideline says, you know, medication plus cognitive um, help and swap, but there's nothing, it's medication or nothing. And if you don't take your medication, don't have medication, you're not even really offered any more CAMS appointments. Um, so it really is, we just need a lot more um, support in other ways as well. Great. I think um, it's a good time to bring it to an end. It's just to say a massive, massive thank you to both of you for agreeing to take part in this and speaking to me and to each other about uh, your experiences and to anyone who's listening. Um, if you are interested in our podcast, they're all on ntmh.info. If you're interested in taking part as a participant, again, try ntmh.info or our ntmh Facebook page or Twitter page or Instagram even. I know, Instagram. So... I just want to say, please review and rate and let us know what we can do better and what you found interesting or not. And we'll hopefully bring you another podcast soon. Thanks very much and bye-bye.